If you have your copy of scripture, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2 this morning as we come to the preaching of God's word. And we're looking at Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 39 and we're going to read down to verse 52 to the end of the chapter. You'll find that on page 858 if you're using a copy of the church Bible. And as you're turning there, I'll just say very briefly um, how thankful I am to be here. Uh, Our family moved to St. Simons in 1989. This church was just forming then. There are some very familiar faces for which I am thankful uh, to see this morning. We were in the homes of several of the people here through my sort of formative years. I didn't know the Lord then, though I grew up in a Christian home. Um, And I left St. Simon's in 2000, was converted in 2001, um, ended up in Greenville, South Carolina, where I met my wife Anna, Uh, went to seminary, then went to Philadelphia. This is more than you need to know, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And was an intern at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and then pastored a daughter church for a year. And then in 2009, the Lord called us to plant New Covenant Presbyterian Church in Richmond Hill, Georgia. So we came back to the South, thankfully. We were exiled up in Philadelphia, came back to the South, and um, by God's grace, planted New Covenant, uh, was there for almost a complete 10 years. We actually voted to organize from being a church plant to being a particular church in this building in 2014, which was a very special thing. Um, And now we are praying for where the Lord is taking us next as we are transitioning out away from New Covenant. We would appreciate your prayers for what the Lord has next for us. But I am so grateful to be here, and I love being here, and love the opportunity, especially to open God's word to us this morning. And so we're looking at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39, and we're going to read down to verse 52. Let me just briefly pray for us, and then we'll come to the reading and preaching of God's word. Father, we would not come to the ministry of your word without asking you to add your divine blessing to it. Uh, We acknowledge that unless you build the house, we labor in vain who build, and unless you send your word out by the power of your spirit, our reading of it for us and for our spiritual benefit will be in vain. And so we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would do a great and powerful work among us, that you would make us to hear the voice of the Son of God. We pray that you would fix the eyes of our hearts on the Lord Jesus this morning. We pray that you would give us more love for him and that you would give us a greater desire to follow him and that you would conform us to his image. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. And Luke has just moved very quickly from the birth narratives of Jesus now into this section. And he writes, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor, some translations say the grace of God, was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended and they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. 
And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, and and the force of that should probably be more like, look, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, if you're anything like me, uh, you sort of feel jolted immediately after the Christmas season. We spend about a month um, getting excited about celebrating the birth of Jesus. Uh, We read the birth narratives in our homes. We sing the great hymns of Christmas. We, We are reminded afresh of the glory and the wonder of the incarnation. We are astonished anew that God would knit himself together in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Um, we, we have candlelight services. We have Christmas parties. And it's, it's everybody, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And then something happens and that period between December 25th and the new year, we wake up and we're like, who am I? What day is it? What am I supposed to do? And we, it's, it's sort of the no man's land, and then we start realizing, well, it's the end of the year, and we start thinking about all the ways we failed, and we think about all the things we wanted to do that we didn't do, and how this year was not what we wanted it to be, and maybe next year will be better, and we start reformulating plans, and we start reestablishing goals, and most of us, if we're honest, have a lot of guilt in between that period, but then we know the new year's coming, and, and what I would like to do for us this morning is to ask us to try to transition a little differently. What would be the right way for us to continue keeping our minds fixed on the Lord Jesus after celebrating in a focused way the incarnation? And I think the most fitting thing is for us to consider this passage here this morning that Luke has given us. Luke is the only one of the gospel writers who gives us this account. Matthew, Mark, and John go directly in one sense from the birth and infancy of Jesus, to the public ministry of Jesus. There is a uh, a 30-year gap in the early chapters of the other evangelists. But Luke, and he has a very specific reason for doing this, and no doubt he has learned about this account from interactions with Mary personally, decides to tell us about this one event in the life of the boy, Jesus. Now, before we look at this this morning, um, I'm, I want to say I'm, I'm sure that you've had this thought before at some point in your Christian life, um, if you have been a Christian for any length of time, and that is, why don't we know more about the Lord Jesus? If this is the Savior of the world, if everything that he said and did has a bearing on our eternal destiny, and he is the only Savior of the world, And if everything that's said about him by Simeon and Anna and the angels and the wise men and the entirety of the Old Testament prophets is true, why is there so little about the Lord Jesus? I hope 
I'll answer that at some point. I'm going to leave you hanging for a moment. But Luke tells us here in uh, Luke 39 to 52 actually quite a lot about the Lord Jesus. And what he focuses on primarily is that Jesus had to undergo real human development in his spiritual life and in his soul. Jesus, the Savior, had to undergo human development in the spiritual life of his human soul. Notice verse 40, in a sense, Luke is bookending everything that we're going to look at with verse 40 and verse 52. Verse 40, he says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then notice verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Well, this morning we are going to look at just two things. First, we're going to consider the nature of Jesus' human growth, all those particulars about it. And then secondly, we're going to consider the significance of Jesus' human growth, the nature of it and the significance of it. What do we know about it and what bearing does it have on my life? And here Luke tells us very clearly at the outset that Jesus had to grow. Uh, he moves us very quickly from everything that Mary and Joseph did for Jesus in the temple, bringing him to be circumcised, bringing him to, in a sense, passively obey the law of God as an infant, being consecrated according to the law, receiving the sign of circumcision. Jesus is, as an infant, fulfilling the law of God in the temple for us. He is keeping God's law for us. And now Luke fast forwards and tells us, that no sooner had they gone home that Jesus began to grow and become strong and was filled with wisdom. Now, uh, what's very interesting about this account is that uh, some might suppose if Jesus was who believers say he is, who the scriptures claim him to be, why wouldn't we know about any miracles that he did? Wouldn't he have done miracles? I mean, 30 years is a long time for somebody to just bide their time in ordinary uh, normal small town life, which is what Jesus was doing. Um, if you've heard the story about Jesus as a boy uh, taking clay and making a pigeon and making that pigeon come to life and fly, I'm sorry, it's not true. I'm sorry if that upsets you, but let me tell you, that's not true. It didn't happen. That's apocryphal. It's not true. Jesus grew ordinarily. Everything about Jesus, from his infancy to his public ministry, though he is God manifest in the flesh, though he never ceased being the infinite and eternal God, the Apostle Paul says he was in the form of God, that all that makes God God is true of Jesus. He is God. He never ceased to be God, and yet during that period of time, he lived a very ordinary, very ordinary life because he was fully man. I think as evangelical and Reformed Christians, we are so zealous often, rightly so, to focus on the deity of the Lord Jesus because you have to believe that he is. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am the great I am, you will die in your sins. Um, it is fundamental. If you want to have eternal life, you must believe that he is Yahweh, the great I am. 
And yet, I think we oftentimes have a harder time understanding that he was fully man, yet without sin. That in every way we are human, Jesus was human. Jesus would have gone through all the normal growth progress. His bones would have grown during that period from infancy to adulthood. He would have gone through that sort of awkward stage that I certainly went through and maybe you went through. He he would have gone through every single normal experience growing as a man into adulthood. B.B. Warfield, the great lion of Princeton, uh, great theologian of Princeton of a century ago, says it was not merely the mind of a man that was in him. It was not merely the mind of a man that was in Christ, but the heart of a man as well, and the spirit of a man. In a word, he was all that a man, a man without error and sin, is and must be conceived to have grown as is proper for a man to grow, not only during his youth, but continuously through life, not alone in knowledge, but in wisdom, not alone in wisdom, but in reverence and charity, in moral strength and in beauty of holiness, and that it would have continued until the great it is finished on the cross. So that Jesus was experiencing real growth as a man, until he breathed his last breath on the cross, having finished the work of redemption. Um, Jesus had to experience full human experience. And Luke tells us in no uncertain terms that he did just that. Now, I've noted that it was without sin. Um, That doesn't mean that Jesus lacked anything. To say he grew in wisdom doesn't mean that he had uh, any sinful imperfection. So Jesus would have had, as a 12-year-old, the fullest capacity for divine spiritual wisdom that a 12-year-old could have. And he would have matured, and at 25, he would have had a greater capacity for spiritual wisdom and maturity than he had at 12 in accord with the ordinary course of humanity. Jesus matured, and he grew. He was filled, Luke says, with divine wisdom. At 30, he gained a greater capacity for wisdom and spiritual maturity than he had when he was 12. And he did this perfectly at each stage and at each age in which he grew and developed. Now, we'll talk a little bit about what that means more in a moment. But I want us to think just briefly about this. Are our conceptions of Jesus adequate biblical conceptions? Do we think about the Lord Jesus having to learn according to his human nature? Do we think about him having to learn the scriptures? That's a thought that's foreign to a lot of people. Jesus didn't know the Bible by osmosis in his human nature. Remember, Jesus himself said... He didn't know the day nor the hour when he was coming again. That's because the Bible doesn't reveal what day he was coming again. And he subjected himself perfectly and sinlessly to everything that God had breathed out in the scriptures. Now that's the point, isn't it, about him sitting in the temple and learning from the teachers, asking questions and answering them. He was zealous 
to learn and to grow. He was zealous most of all, and this is a point I really want to stress this morning. He was zealous most of all in that area of human development that is most important, and that is gleaning divine wisdom from the word of God. You see, what Jesus is teaching us is that to be fully human and to be really human is to know the wisdom and the will and the word of the God who has created us in his image. Jesus is teaching us that the the most important development is not where my children play sports, where my children go to college, what my children do in life, what career track they have, will they be successful, but are they gleaning divine wisdom? Are they really growing in that spiritual inner life that we were originally created to grow in as we learn from the word of God everything that God wants us to learn and grow. And Jesus is teaching us as a boy, isn't that marvelous? He's teaching us as a boy what is most important. Now, it's interesting. We, I've said already we don't know a lot about what Jesus did between infancy and 12 years old, and we don't know anything really between 12 years old and 30 um, over just a a very short amount of verses, Luke is going to take us um, 30 years in the next chapter. And yet we do know one thing about Jesus that he did when he was two and three and four and five and six and seven and eight and nine and 10 and 11 and 12. We know one thing that he did every year. He went with his parents to the temple. So part of his human development was that he was born into a worshiping family and a family that understood that the most important thing in life and the most important part of our development is what we're doing right now. Coming, sitting under God's word, worshiping him according to his word. And Jesus went every year, Luke says, Every year, notice verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, and when he was 12, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, uh, Jesus had, no doubt, gone home to Nazareth. He had learned the scriptures from his parents. Um, That's one of the reasons why he was born into the home that he was born into. God was ensuring that the Redeemer, the Savior, would be taught and brought up in his home. on the knee of Mary, learning the great prophecies and promises, learning the law of God, learning everything that God had revealed to Israel in the Old Covenant. He would be taught at home, but then he would come to the temple and he would realize that there is something beyond what he could learn at home. See, the boy Jesus at 12 years old, and this is marvelous, understood there was more he could learn than what he could learn just from his parents. And so in the temple, he stays behind, And he listens to and he interacts with what is, as flawed as they were, the best teachers Israel had to offer at that time. Now, one theologian has said, and I love this thought, you almost wish you knew which rabbis and teachers were there when the 12-year-old Jesus was in the temple asking questions. Was Gamaliel there? Was Nicodemus there? Would they remember 18 years later, that they had seen this astonishing young boy from Nazareth who was amazing them with his answers and his knowledge of the scripture. 
would they have remembered that? Uh, Luke doesn't tell us, but Luke does tell us that Jesus stayed behind and his parents are searching for him, but Jesus has uh, rightly determined that there is something that is most important to his human growth and development, his spiritual growth and development, and that is being in the house of God, learning from the men that God had appointed to teach his word, and Jesus was eager to learn everything he could, you know. There's a verse in Psalm 119, I think it's verses 99 and 100, where David says, I have more understanding than my teachers because I meditate on your precepts. I think that's fulfilled in Jesus here. Um, Luke tells us that in his development, he is listening. Notice this progression, and I love this. Notice that verse 46, he was sitting among the teachers He was listening to the teachers. He was asking them questions. And then he was astonishing them with his answers. I like to imagine, and this is a little bit of sanctified imagination. I like to think that Jesus was asking them about portions of scripture like Isaiah 53. And saying to them, after hearing maybe them try to explain it, who is the suffering servant, he being the suffering servant, and asking, who is this suffering servant who's going to be wounded for the transgressions of his people? Who is this one that's going to be, who's going to be marred more than any man? Who is this one who the chastisement for the peace of God's people is going to be upon? Who is this one by whose stripes God's people will be healed? Who is this one whose soul will be made an offering for sin and will justify many by his knowledge. Who is this? And I like to imagine that the teachers, some of them, maybe most of them were saying, well, this is Israel. And, you know, Israel was the son of God in Exodus. And uh, Israel has been afflicted by the nations. And yet God's blessings going to go out from there. And Jesus saying, but how, how could that be who that is when Isaiah says he was wounded for our transgressions? He was bruised for our iniquities. And I like to think that Jesus is then finally answering and saying, is this not about the Redeemer himself, him being the Redeemer? Um, You know, Jesus had to learn the scriptures. He would have learned them, probably knew them by heart, as he listened and he asked questions and he processed and he answered, and he taught, and he interacted with his father and mother. But you know, Jesus would have read the Bible differently than we did. Now this is where you really have to listen carefully. Jesus read the Bible, the Old Testament, as God's covenant revelation to him and about him. So, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 says that the father said to the son in Psalms 2, you, Psalm 2, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the father said to the son in Psalm 45, verse 10, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And the father said to the son in Psalm 102, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. The writer of Hebrews says the father was speaking to the son. 
And the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that the promises made to Abraham were made to Abraham and his seed, singular, not many, not Israel, but one who is Christ. That means the promises God gave Abraham that he was going to bless the nations were passed down to Jesus because he would be the one in whom the promises were fulfilled. And that means Jesus would have understood as he read the scriptures the mission of God. The purpose of God. He would have understood his sonship more fully. He would have understood that he had to suffer and that he had to rise. He would have understood the fruit of his mediatorial work. He would have understood that he was the heavenly bridegroom sent by the Father to redeem a bride for himself. He would have understood all that he came into the world to do as he developed, fully knowing that he is the God-man and the Redeemer, and yet learning the revelation of God as he developed and grew. Now, um, that's all nice and true, I believe. Um, But what bearing does that have on me and on you? Uh, We could easily say, well, Jesus learned the scriptures and you need to learn the scriptures. And that is most certainly true. We could say Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, was most interested in learning God's word. And if you are 12 or 11 and a half, my oldest son, you should be interested in learning the scriptures like Jesus did as a 12-year-old boy. But I think that would be to miss why Luke puts this passage where he does in this section in the beginning of his gospel. And here's what I'm going to argue. First, Luke is telling us something about a personal witness to who Jesus is. Now, keep in mind, we've just celebrated Christmas. We've heard about the angels. We've heard about the Magi. We've heard about Simeon and Anna. We've heard Mary's song. We've heard Elizabeth's song. Maybe we've heard, uh, maybe we've heard um, uh, the more great psalms and Old Testament prophecies. Um, and we, we are convinced that This is no ordinary baby, that this is the son of God. This is the one who's going to sit on the throne of David. This is the one to whom all authority and power on heaven and earth are given. This is the one, Simeon said, that a sword was going to pierce Mary's soul and that he would be for the rise and the falling of many in Israel, that everybody's destiny is determined by this baby. Whether you go to heaven or hell is determined by this child. And the next thing Luke shows us is what kind of child this infant was becoming. I think it's a personal witness. One writer puts it this way, pious Jews and lowly shepherds waiting for the salvation of Israel bore testimony to the infant Messiah. Here he now bears testimony to himself. Isn't that awesome? Luke is essentially showing us All you need is this one cameo of what Jesus was like at 12. That's all you need. You don't need a bigger picture from infancy to public ministry. All you need is this one picture to see this is no merely ordinary child. There's something radically different. Mary understood that. Remember, Mary treasured these things. Notice verse 51. After finding Jesus, searching for him, telling him of her distress... And bringing them home, notice his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. He was bearing witness to himself that he was who he was prophesied to be as an infant. 
Now there's something more and there's something bigger than even that for us. Here, Jesus is the second Adam. Now, if you read biographies, you expect a biography to read a certain way. You expect it to open um, with something about the, um, the birth, the, the family heritage, the birth, the um, early years, the development, in, in sequential chronological order. That's just a given. Anyone writes a biography, that's, you begin with the family history, you talk about where the child was born, you go step by step by step, you talk about the parents first, and you go on. Luke saves the genealogy of Jesus for the next chapter, which is completely strange when Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. But notice that Luke takes Jesus' genealogy at the end of chapter 3 all the way back to Adam the Son of God. What Luke is showing us here, and the value this has for us, is that we are seeing the 12-year-old Jesus as the last Adam doing all that Adam failed to do and preparing to undo all that Adam came and brought into this world and did. So that Jesus is recapitulating Adam's life and obeying God perfectly and growing sinlessly and perfectly always doing his father's will, always obeying his father. And here's why that's good news. If, if you've never heard this before, that's good news because you and I have spent our whole lives disobeying God. That's why that's good news. I was talking to someone very close to me. They asked what I was preaching on this morning. I told them this passage and they said, and this is an older individual. Uh, he said to me, I really regret that I didn't live an obedient childhood like him. And I said, but that's the point. That's why he's living that childhood as the representative second Adam of his people. That's why. That's foundational. That doesn't mean go out and live however you want, keep being disobedient, go and steal and rob and commit adultery, go do that. You're good. Jesus lived the life for you. Just go out there. But what it means is that we can never render to God what God requires of us. But Jesus came representing us. And even as a boy was doing everything we should have done. Everything a faithful Israelite should have done. Everything Adam should have done. And he's doing it for his people to merit righteousness for them. Um, it's a marvelous thought. You know, Irenaeus, the second century theologian. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. He has this really marvelous thought about this. He says that Christ became an infant to sanctify infants. He became a boy to sanctify boys. He became an adult to sanctify adults. For all who would be born of him, he came and lived the full human experience in order to redeem a people in whatever stage of life they happen to be. Isn't that awesome? That's one of the great thoughts in church history. He lived every stage all the way till he hung on the cross as a man. A full, fully developed, fully mature man. He lived the life we could never live in our place as the representative redeemer. Um, perhaps, and flowing out of that, there is one more large takeaway from this. Um, Jesus was becoming the source of wisdom for his people. Now, Luke has said twice in those bookends, he grew in wisdom. He grew in wisdom. Um, 
you know, in Scripture, Jesus is called the wisdom of God. Jesus actually calls himself the wisdom of God. When he says, the wisdom of God sent you apostles and prophets, and you persecuted them, he's speaking of himself. The Apostle Paul says that he is God's wisdom, foolish to the world, but full of wisdom. Paul will say in Colossians, and this is supremely important, he says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Matthew Henry says on that verse, they are hidden in him for you if you're a believer, so that he becomes the source of all true wisdom, so that when I go to the scriptures and I'm reading God's word, I I should be seeking to see Christ. And when I need wisdom, I should be going to him knowing that he is an infinite fountain of wisdom. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1, of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom. That is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that everything we need is in him. He was filled with wisdom so that he would be the source of wisdom for his people. Um, Now, let me say this this morning. That also necessitates that we learn from the Lord Jesus where to go to get that wisdom. And that means that we need to become a people of scripture. And it doesn't matter if you're six years old. It doesn't matter if you're 86 years old. We lack wisdom. We lack wisdom. And God has given us a perfect, a perfect means of gaining that wisdom, and that is in the scriptures. And he calls us to be a people of the book, and he calls us to be a people that sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him, and he calls us a people to diligently instruct our children in the home. I'm going to tell you a story just briefly here um, before we close. Uh, When Anna and I were engaged, we met an elderly couple um, who had in some distant way been related to our family, and we had connected with them and gotten to know them, and uh, his father had actually been... Uh, one of my dad's uh, seminary professors. And now this man, when we met him, was in his 60s, uh, perhaps late 60s. And uh, he told us the story of his conversion. He said, you know, I was the one child in our family that wasn't converted, wasn't interested in spiritual things, all the way through uh, his children becoming adults. And, and you could hear the regret that he had. And, you know, he said, we, we didn't seek the Lord. We didn't take our children to church. We lived for the world. We lived for money. We lived for jobs. We lived for family. We just lived for everything except the Lord. And he said, and then the Lord converted me. I think he was in his late 40s. And he might have been in his 50s. And he had this book sitting by a three-ring binder with laminated sheets, um, full, sitting right by the coffee table where we were sitting, and he took it out and he opened it, and he must have had 12 to 15 other full binders like this, and his name was Carl. Carl said, "Um, when I was converted, I realized how I had not led my family in the word. I had not taught them the scriptures. We had not prioritized worship of God in our home and the things that God valued most. And he said, and so I wanted to make up for that time. And so we have written over so many years devotionals on portions of scripture for our children to read to our grandchildren every Sunday. It was beautiful. 
It was beautiful. And that's a picture of how we should respond no matter where we are in life. When we go from here, our desire should be to, yes, see the Lord Jesus in his fullness, and then secondarily, to want to be conformed to his image and be made like him, whether we are 12 or whether we are 70. It does not matter. Now is when God wants us to be rooted and grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very wisdom of God. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are weak and we are feeble. We fail in so many ways. Lord, we have not loved your word as we ought. We have not worshipped you as you have required of us. Lord, our hearts are grieved at the many days and months and years that we have wasted. And so we thank you and praise you this morning for such a Savior, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves, who was himself filled with wisdom and knowledge, upon whom your spirit was in the days of his flesh, and who took all of our failings, all of our sin on himself at the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have uh, merited for us a perfect righteousness. We thank you that you are the very wisdom of God for us. We pray this morning that you would cause us to grow spiritually in you, that you would increase our faith, that you would give us a greater hunger for your word. We pray that you would do this for the youngest child here and for the most elderly saint We pray, our God, that you would be merciful to us and cause us to grow up in all things into the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.